Everything we do requires energy, from waking up in the morning, to changing your shirt, to flipping on your laptop. And energy requires fuel. For the human body, that comes in the form of food. For the human ecosystem we have built, it requires a different kind of fuel. So far, that's been mostly sourced from traditional means, like coal, oil, and natural gas. The Statistical Review of World Energy for 2020 showed that fossil fuels still provided 84% of the world's energy. How do we climb that heated mountain that is our climate crisis? We need clean energy sources like solar PV electricity to be globally mainstream, wind to convert even more kinetic energy, geothermal options for our buildings, more natural sources of tidal and wave power, and innovations like the ability to use waste to drive bioenergy. The good news? This energy transition is already happening. Renewable energy is the new black. Director and CEO of the Canadian Renewable Energy Association, Robert Hernung, Chief Commercial Officer of Loop Energy, George Rubin, and Chief Executive Officer of Transalta, John Cousinoris, are here to get down to the gigawatts of it all. Welcome to our final episode of The Edge of Energy, presented by Scotiabank, a podcast about pushing Canada's energy transition forward. I'm your host, Kofi Hope. Robert, you deal with stakeholder advocacy, public engagement focused on renewable energy, and energy storage, along with transforming Canada's energy mix. Let's start our listeners off with how the measurement of energy and emissions actually works. Well, it's actually fairly straightforward. I mean, measuring energy, depending on the type of energy, you're measuring either kilowatt hours or gigajoules, depending on whether you're using gas or electricity. But really, in terms of emissions, what matters is the carbon content of the energy that's being used. And if you know how much carbon is in the energy you're using when you combust it, then you will know how many emissions are coming forward. That's just straightforward chemistry. And so in the end, it's relatively easy to track greenhouse gas emissions from the energy sector. And as unfortunately we all know, those emissions have been steadily moving upward. John, you're no stranger to the legal and compliance aspects of business. Everything from overseeing operations, commercial and customer solutions, hedging and optimization. No question, you're engaged. So given your understanding of measurement and emissions, how are we doing in Canada? Just to show you the challenge that exists for our country, we've set targets of a 45% reduction of emissions. And Canada right now emits just under 800 megatons of CO2 a year. So our target is pretty dramatic to reduce over the course of the next nine years, 45% of those emissions. And just to highlight the scope of that challenge, our company, just over the course of the last four or five years, has reduced its emissions by something like 26 megatons. So TransAlta by itself has reduced its emissions by about 8% or so of the Canadian target, yet our emissions reductions don't show up. In other words, even though we've reduced our emissions, other parts of the Canadian economy and Canadians generally have increased their emissions such that whatever we've contributed actually is negligible and can't be found in the emissions profile that the country has at the moment. And kind of going back to your question in terms of some of the behavioral change, I think it is going to require more mindfulness, I think, on the part of Canadians to be making appropriate decisions. When I see just how much more people are focused on recycling, for example, 
in the country. I think there is a lot to be said for people just being more mindful about not being casual, about leaving lights on, for example, moving to the kind of efficiency technologies where, you know, your new, your lights in your home only go on if you're in there. Heating only works when you need it to, those kinds of things. I think pricing is going to have to uh, play a role as well. I think right now, many economists think that's the most effective way to do things. And I think it does have an impact. I'm concerned because some of the things that I've seen would suggest that Canadians, when you ask them the question, you know, are you supportive of us taking measures on the environment? The answer is overwhelmingly yes. But when you ask them how much they're willing to pay or contribute to getting that done, it's a relatively modest sum of money, not enough to, to get us to where we need to get. And finally, I think it is going to require policy like requiring automobiles to be electric by a certain time period, for example, imposing those kinds of changes, which we think are happening slowly and incentivizing electric vehicles, for example. Those are the things we also, and we're an electricity company, think that in general, electrification is going to be a key answer. The more we electrify, um, the more we will be able to make material and meaningful moves to reducing our emissions. According to the IEA, the demand for all fossil fuels is set to grow significantly in 2021, despite the pauses during the pandemic. Can you give us some insight into the variables that might have contributed to these ebbs and flows? Well, I mean, there's no doubt we did see a decline in emissions in 2020 as a result of the pandemic. And that was a product of us burning less fossil fuels, burning less fossil fuels for transport, for example, air travel down, people commuting less, all of these different things. So what was interesting was that in 2020, while essentially production of energy went down and use of energy went down for most types, production of renewable energy actually increased in 2020. And it was the only type of energy that saw an increase. And as we move towards net zero, there's a growing understanding that we're going to need significantly more renewable energy going forward. So you mentioned the IEA, the International Energy Agency, released a study earlier this year on a pathway to net zero. What would the world have to do to move to net zero? And they found that wind and solar energy would have to move from 9% of global electricity production today to 68% of global electricity production by 2050. So in essence, we need to see a tenfold or a 20-fold expansion of these technologies going forward in order to meet our net zero goals. Because when we want to get to net zero, we need to decarbonize the electricity system, but we also need to significantly expand it because we're going to use that electricity to help decarbonize transportation through electric vehicles, buildings, through heat pumps, and heavy industry. In most of the stats, the production of renewables will actually increase energy use significantly to meet even a 2030 milestone to get to net zero. What can we do to reduce this increase? Yeah, I mean, in the end, I don't think you will see necessarily at all a, a, an increase in emissions resulting from expansion of renewables. When we look at the life cycle of renewables development, the energy used to produce the material, for example, to build a wind turbine, is offset. The emissions associated with that are offset by the operation of the turbine within the first 6 to 18 months of its operation. And the wind turbine is going to be operating for 20 to 30 years. <laughs> so you do get a very net positive sort of benefit in that regard there. There are concerns that are raised about wind and solar energy are variable. They rely on the sun and the wind to move forward and you can't count on that. So it's true that these technologies have to be partnered with other technologies, whether it's energy storage or hydropower to ensure that you've got firm power going forward. And what we've seen as these technologies have expanded 
is our ability and understanding of what's required to facilitate that integration has also grown. So whereas years ago, people would say, hmm, there's no way we can put more than 10% renewable energy onto the system because it's going to destabilize the system. Now you have the International Energy Agency, <laughs> sort of the leading think tank in the world, saying, no, we can move to just about 70% of global electricity coming from these sources going forward because we have a range of tools to manage that. So in the end, the expansion of renewable energy is, it's not really a technical issue we have to deal with. We're going through a fundamental energy transition at the moment where the energy system of 30 years from now is going to look quite different from the energy system of today. And in a sense, technology is leading that transition. What needs to catch up is our regulatory processes, our market frameworks, our policy frameworks. We're scrambling to catch up with the technology, just as we've often seen in other sectors with big advances in technology, whether it's telecommunications or, or other things. So there's a reason for optimism in terms of moving forward, but we have to ensure that we're creating the conditions under which we can take advantage of these technologies going forward. On June 11th, Elon Musk used about 27 characters in a tweet to express that fool cells, referring to hydrogen fuel cells, might not be comparable to his use of lithium-ion batteries. George, you've been driving business and revenue growth in existing and new markets, based on innovation, for a while now. Now, Robert makes a great case about the importance of an energy mix. Can you explain hydrogen technology and enlighten us on how it might be key to our transition to clean energy? Let's maybe start with why are we even talking about both of these things, right? Electrification of sort of all things, and, and in this particular case, electrification of transportation um, is is an absolute reality. It's one of the one of the major megatrends that is shaping this this industry today, and will continue to do so for you know for years to come. Uh, this electrification at the scale that we're seeing it today has started with passenger cars and, and I think it is it is only fair to say that uh, frankly if, if not for Elon Musk and if not for Tesla uh, you know things may have still happened who knows right but it probably wouldn't have been on the pace that we're on today right in fact the reason hydrogen is having a renaissance as it is experiencing today is to some extent because of what Tesla has accomplished in the passenger car space and how it pushed the industry into this new sort of a mental framework of saying, all right, now that we go into electrify passenger cars, we're going to electrify everything. And now we need to look at the trucks, the buses, the commercial applications, the rest of the fleets. And as soon as you do this, then the question comes up, so how do we do this? And how is the passenger car segment different from, you know, the heavy duty, the medium duty, those those types of applications, right? So that's that's kind of the backdrop to this. Uh, in terms of comparing the two technologies, when we talk about using these two things in the context of electrifying a vehicle of, of any sorts, right? In case of the batteries, it comes down to putting enough batteries into the vehicle to store sufficient amount of energy to enable this car or bus to perform whatever work it needs to perform. The hydrogen fuel cell is, is actually a generator, right? So hydrogen fuel cell takes hydrogen and oxygen and combines them to make electricity and water, right? So these are the fundamentally different approaches. 
and 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 in some applications one makes more sense in other applications the other one makes more sense to be absolutely honest with you in most of the applications the best solution is actually a combination of the two things and the reason for that is that batteries are very good in dynamically responding to the load requirement that the vehicle generates right so if you need to produce supply more energy or less energy the battery can adjust its power output quite easily up and down um, however batteries tend to be quite heavy so when you get in a situation where you need to store a lot of energy which is typical for bigger vehicles like buses or trucks you can get into literally thousands and thousands of kilograms worth of energy storage on board that now takes away from your passenger capacity or the payload of the vehicle and ultimately limits its functionality. Hydrogen fuel cells can store lots of energy in a form of hydrogen at a very low weight penalty. So you can put a lot of it on board just like we do today with you know diesel or, or, or uh, uh, gasoline in, in, in a tank and you can run it through the generator as you need it to generate the energy. The downside of the fuel cells is that generally speaking, they are not as, as dynamic as batteries in terms of responding to the requirements of the load. So the best combination of the two is when the fuel cell is used to charge a smaller battery that then acts as a buffer, if you like, between the generator and the motor and you combine the two, the best of both worlds, at the end of the day, the market will decide which technologies would work best and in which applications. So we're electrifying and we've committed to net zero. But to scale this even further, we need some disruptive changes to our infrastructure in Canada and, and frankly around the world. What are some of the challenges we'll face on the way and how can we work through them? I think there will be there will be quite a few, and we will probably face them gradually. I think one of the first disruptions that we will see on the way of electrifying everything and and, and anything is going to be the distribution of electricity and electrical power infrastructure overall. We have been very very fortunate in in this part of the world to live a lifestyle where you just assume that access to electricity is just a given. The reality is that as we load the grid more and more, this distribution is not necessarily set up for this type of load. And so when we see some of the latest legislative actions, like, you know, for example, in Canada, by 2035, I believe, saying that we don't want to have any more internal combustion vehicles sold, which is great in many ways, but it's something that we also need to consider in saying, all right, well, when we all plug in, how is the grid going to handle this? And in many respects, the generating capacity is one side of it, right? And, you know, we can probably address that, but how do we distribute this to all these multiple locations? So this, I, I'm not saying it's insurmountable. I'm just saying it's a disruption. We're going to need to think about it a little bit differently. As we sort of a fast forward, we're going to increasingly see the disruption and the impact of what do we do with all of these new products from recycling point of view. Because new 
types of materials are going to come to market that you know we may be able to handle in certain level of quantities as we have today but what happens when they come in much larger quantities right as we push the entire society to adopting a certain technology there will be a set of infrastructure tools that need to get created to handle it that don't necessarily exist today right from collecting of these things to actually processing them to disposing of things that cannot be reused and and reusing things that can be reused so it will affect technology development it will affect logistics it will affect labor employment all, all sorts of things right so we're looking at a pretty fundamental shift in the ways we generate energy the way we distribute it and the way we consume it this is something that probably the last time happened on this scale during the years of industrial revolution right so you know i think it's uh, it's going to be an interesting ride right <laughs> john what are we not hearing in the conversation about what that disruption means one of the things that i think hasn't gotten as much play on what is required is really a change in individual consumers behavior there's been a lot of discussion around the supply of energy and the emissions profile associated with that, but not a lot about the actual consumption of it. What we do as everyday Canadians and what people do in other countries of the world. And I think that's the key piece that's been missing in the discussion and one of the key things that we need to talk about. So people will have to rethink the way they live. I think they're going to have to make investments in making their homes, their cars, everything they do more energy efficient. They're going to need to think about the way they work the way they travel, the way they commute, the kinds of places that they live in order for us to have a chance to get to the kind of targets that we've set for ourselves. So a lot of discussion around the targets, quite a bit of work and discussion around the pathways, but not as much, I don't think, discussion around consumption of what that means for rank and file Canadians. We know Canada's oil and gas industry is going through a major transition. The fact is they'll be in operation for quite some time. Can you speak to some of the transitions taking place right now? You know, I think increasingly you're seeing companies involved in oil and gas who are repositioning themselves not to be oil and gas companies, but to be energy companies and allowing themselves to engage in a broader range of technologies. And so we see, for example, a lot of these companies are taking steps right now to invest in renewable energy to help offset their greenhouse gas emissions. We just had an announcement in Alberta recently where Senevis made a big commitment to purchase renewable electricity from a solar farm in the province to help offset their emissions going forward. But you also have companies going further than that and who are actually investing in developing renewables themselves. So Suncor is an owner of wind farms. Enbridge is an owner of wind farms going forward. So, And if we look at some of the large majors internationally, your British Petroleums, your Shells, those types of companies, you're seeing they're making significant investments right now to move into offshore wind. And they're doing that because they have a lot of experience working offshore with offshore oil and gas platforms that they can apply and and utilize in terms of working in the renewable space. So I think we are seeing some very positive signs about a desire by these companies to diversify. And we also have a number of these companies that are stepping forward and making targets on their own to move to reduce greenhouse gas emissions or even to move to net zero emissions as a company. We've been so entrenched with the idea that we are in crisis that time has been passing by on the topic and not the actual actions that are happening. John, Transalta has some exciting initiatives that have been making milestones of late. Can you talk about off-coal and gas conversion? 
You're starting in about 2018, 2019, really beginning in even in 2015, 2016, the middle part of the last decade. With the change in government policy in Alberta and with the direction of phasing out coal fire generation, our company began on a journey to see if there was any way that we could not only meet the requirements that government was imposing, but actually beat them and do it in a way that made sense for people in the province of Alberta, permitting us to actually use the investments that we've made to provide clean but low cost, because the cost equation is key for all of our consumers. As part of that journey, we came to the realization that we could take our existing facilities and change them from burning coal to burning much cleaner natural gas. And as part of that process, we did uh, a couple of things. We actually shut down some of our older coal-fired facilities. So there's quite a bit of coal that has been phased out. And we have been in the process of converting our older coal plants into natural gas. In fact, we've completed two of the conversions now, and we're actually getting better results than we initially anticipated. And uh, we're in the process right now of converting the third large plant that we're going to do the last one. We're ending coal mining in our company at the end of this year. We also had two coal-fired plants in Washington state. One of them was shut down at the end of last year. And the last one will cease to operate at the end of 2025. So we are substantially through a journey of effectively decarbonizing. And the impacts are high. I think, you know, for every megawatt of generation that a coal plant creates, there's over a ton of CO2 that's actually emitted. When you have natural gas, uh, that number, depending on how efficient the plant is, maybe 0 0.5, 0 0.55, 0 0.6, so 40 to 50% reduction in the emissions for the amount of energy that is being consumed. So a really great outcome for our company and a really even better outcome for the environment and the citizens of the province of Alberta. To commit to emission targets, it's going to take involvement from a number of stakeholders. We see that government and regulatory authorities are on board. What about the industry, the commercial side, and even us, the potential consumer? Yeah, I mean, if we think about that in the Canadian context, there's a few things. I mean, one of the key policies that has been introduced is carbon pricing, which sends a very clear signal to investors that we want to drive more investment into lower carbon intensive investments than higher carbon intensive investments. And that works very well for renewables, clearly. We do need to make a commitment to move to decarbonize our electricity grid. So that means we've really got to get moving and, and to move on that. And so to enable that, what do we need? We do need reform in terms of market and regulatory frameworks to remove barriers to these technologies being introduced. We do need to invest in infrastructure. And infrastructure is traditionally thought in the electricity sector of transmission lines, you know, build big transmission lines. But we now know that there are many ways to ensure the reliability of the grid. You can do it by connecting more generation in with transmission, but you can do it by managing energy efficiency, or you can do it by having more production on houses and buildings in terms of rooftop solar. Uh, and we have now smart grid and, and artificial intelligence technologies that actually allow us to use all of these tools much more efficiently so that we can work to integrate that. So we need to invest in, in that broader sense of infrastructure going forward. And then the other thing is, is that we need to take steps now to start to increase the demand for electricity through electrification that's going to be required through things like electric vehicles. If electric vehicles, Canada has just said they want to ensure that in 2035 all vehicles sold in Canada are, are non-emitting. Well, that means we need the infrastructure to support those vehicles. 
to go forward. Canada has developed a hydrogen strategy and wants to move forward. You can use renewable energy to produce green hydrogen, which has no greenhouse gas emissions impact. And again, we need, that, we need to act on that strategy to actually ensure that we remove the barriers to the development of hydrogen and create the infrastructure to use it. So there's a lot of work to be done. We can't underestimate the challenge of moving to net zero, but it's not primarily a technical problem. There still are, yes, some areas where we do need further advances and technical solutions, but we've got a lot of stuff now that gets us quite a big chunk of the way there, including energy efficiency, including renewable energy. And we need to be trying to maximize that right now as we're working on other parts of the problem. But in the end, that involves us moving from just having the technology to actually enabling that technology through choices made with respect to policy, regulation, and markets. The report from the International Renewable Energy Agency, the IRENA, revealed that 91% of new renewables last year were wind and solar projects. China, Vietnam, Brazil, and the African continent are just some of the places that have been really busy with new offerings. Closer to home, in Alberta, Amazon has chosen Newell County as the first renewable energy investment it's made in Canada. Will this be at scale by 2050? How can these kinds of initiatives increase visibility and strengthen Canada's infrastructure? Well, I think it's important to note that the reason you're seeing that growth in renewables is because of economics. Over the last decade, the cost of solar energy has declined 90%. The cost of wind energy has declined 70%. So these technologies are being built now in the way that you just described because they're actually the most cost-effective options available today to produce new electricity. And the costs are still going to be declining going forward. Even in Canada over the last decade, 52% of the new electricity capacity added in the country is wind and solar. And as we look forward, there's a study just recently completed, North American Renewable Integration Study, which projected that between 90 and 95% of all new electrical generation in North America between now and 2050 would be wind and solar. And it's all driven by the economics. Bloomberg New Energy Finance, they, they look at this scenario as well. In their projections out to 2050, they estimate that just about 80% of all investment in the electricity sector in the next 30 years is going to be in wind, solar, and energy storage. And it's economics that are driving that. And as long as those economics are favorable, we're going to continue to see that investment move forward. Transpond Mine is, you know, it's, it's a made in Canada technology where we have some very advanced uh, physics research uh, and industrialization to be able to actually do that uh, power supply from the grid onto the vehicle without relying on batteries. What really gets me excited is when we start talking about the building materials and the embodied carbon of those materials. And, you know, concrete is a great example because we pour a ton of concrete every year around the globe. And if we could turn concrete into a carbon storing uh, material, then we could, we could actually build our way out of this problem. What if we could actually use products that were made with CO2 so thereby, a building itself wouldn't be a source of CO2 emissions. But by virtue of the building materials that we choose, uh, we could actually absorb uh, more CO2 in the, in the building itself. Um, think, of, think of it like a battery with energy and recharging it. And, um, but in this case, actually with CO2, where we're 
sinking CO2 into the materials. Hydrogen may well be the answer for our long-haul transportation, as well as for things like steel making and cement making and other uh, industrial applications. Can you speak to some of these insights from some of our recent experts on clean tech, transportation, urban building, and storage? I think grid is going to be one of those major challenges and major disruptions that we talked about, right, as we transition to the new energy world here. It will require balancing technologies. It would require additional distribution capabilities into places where we either don't have enough or just don't have access to, you know, to power, period. I think it would require ultimately a different level of, of thinking of how we're, you know, how we're managing this, this whole situation, right? With the renewables coming in and greater and greater volumes, as well as with the consumption not only growing, but becoming even more distributed. Right. And, you know, in some cases, it may be building additional transmission lines. In some cases, it may be putting in some sort of energy storage solutions in strategic locations where you can accumulate the energy and then dispense it when required. In some cases, it may be a case of thinking about almost microgrid type solutions that have to operate almost independently from the larger national or provincial or statewide grid solution. So there is not going to be one solution that fits all. You can maybe think of an analogy of a, like a cable versus satellite. In North America, we're very used to cable. Europe is covered in satellite dishes. It's not like they're not aware of the cable technology and we're not aware of the satellite, but one made more sense in one part of the world because they didn't have copper in the ground. They didn't want to dig up their cobblestone streets to put that in, uh, and it would have been too cost prohibitive. Whereas for us, cable did make a lot of sense here, right? So it will be a similar type of situation with a power grid. I don't think there is one way to do it. There would have to be a combination of multiple solutions for it. Thank you all for joining us. It's been such a great conversation. And, you know, with the last year we've had and the wildfires and, and the temperatures, it can get really easy to be pessimistic. And maybe it's my last name, but I really appreciate a conversation like this that's hopeful, that is honest about what's happening, but also points us to the great ways we are making strides and the possibility that we can really do this, that together our country can achieve net zero in time. Uh, thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thank you very much. It was a real uh, joy to participate. And look, we're all looking at a really big opportunity. And I think there'll be some challenges, but tons of opportunities. And there's a lot to be excited about. That's it for this season of The Edge of Energy. I'm your host, Kofi Hope. Thank you to all of those who helped put the show together this season. Mihira Lashman, Angela Misery, Camille Hemming, and Sheena Rossiter. And of course, our good friends at Scotiabank. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And a special thank you to you, our listeners, this season. Thank you so much for joining us. And know that net zero is something we can achieve together.